0: Bro. This is Good Morning Liberty.
1: Well, what is up all of our Liberty loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of the Good Morning Liberty podcast. My name is Nate Thurston, and across from me, as always, is Charles, second tallest libertarian Thompson. Once again, if you find a taller libertarian, let us know so we can take away his nickname. And a special guest with us via the Zoom today, Mr. Brad Palumbo from Fee, one of our favorite websites in the entire world. And you're also the host of the podcast Breaking Boundaries. You've had some, some really good guests on there, Rand Paul. Glenn Greenwall, Nancy Mace. I mean, that's amazing, man. how's it going today?
0: Hey, thanks for having me on. It's good to be with you,
1: yeah. we're uh, we're glad to have you. you know We do a, a show every day and we talk about what's going on in the news. and we also bring in uh, as much uh, as much reliable news as we can. And it turns out I end up going to fee almost every single day. And that's where I get a lot of my news, actually. It's like two or three websites I'll actually trust to give me good information. so i want to I want to tell you we we go through a lot of your articles on the show, and I, I know a lot of our listeners are excited about that for sure.
0: Well, thanks. That's good to hear. That's what we're hoping to do, you know, is to inform people about policy and free market economics and that's what we wake up every day to do. So it's glad to hear that that it's useful for folks like you and for your audience.
1: Yeah. I was thinking earlier, if you could, if the government could possibly construct a system where you could harm everyone who has a small business and help everyone who has a big business, do you think they could do it any better than what they're currently doing right now?
0: Well, uh, certainly not in terms of lockdowns, in terms of $15 minimum wage, all of these sorts of things. Even the government programs lately that were designed specifically in order to help small businesses, I'm thinking of the Paycheck Protection Program, for example, were quickly co-opted by big corporations and well-connected uh organizations. So it really, it is it is one of the great tragedies of the COVID-19 era that so much is being done by the government in in the name of helping the little guy. But in, real, in reality, over the last year, we've seen just an absolutely obscene concentration and consolidation uh, in favor of big industry giants and well-connected corporations. And really, the small business has had Probably the hardest year in modern American history for it,
2: and it's all under the guise of helping the little guy,
1: uh, as and, as usual, really. I and mean, it, it kind of sounds like what they always do. Yeah.
2: So um, there's an author. There's an author who wrote a book that
0: I, uh, J- I, I believe it's Jason Riley, but there's a great book. Please stop helping.
2: Is the title <laughs> nice? Yeah. We don't need your help.
1: Yeah, we actually just covered your your article about Kroger closing down the, some locations there in California, and that was it's. Does anyone ever stop and think about the economics behind the issues? Are we just in a total emotion, irrational, subjective driven world right now where if you can tweet about helping people, that's really all that matters? Is that kind of where we're at right now?
0: Well, look, I'm actually happy that that story got around so much. It's at one hundred thousand page views and counting because clearly it resonated with people, right, that they passed this quote unquote hero pay mandate, an extra four dollars an hour minimum wage in Long Beach, California on grocery stores. And then uh, what did Kroger do? It shut a bunch of them down because they were already in the red and this just put it past the brink. It's really a lesson here. This is what happens so often with big government interventions. They have all these unintended consequences and they end up hurting the very same people they that they're intended to help. Now, the question was like, Is does anyone listen or does anyone take anything away from this And i I would hope that average people can average people have enough common sense to look at something like that and say okay clearly that was a mistake but it's the politicians who are the problem because think about being a, a member of the long beach city council you get the political plaudits for voting to be generous with somebody else's money and then the consequences are blamed on the business not on you
1: It's actually a pretty, uh, it's a pretty brilliant system and amazing position to be in if you're a politician, (laughs) because all you got to do is promise things that you honestly can't deliver. And when it goes poorly, you can blame uh, everyone else for it. And
0: all you have to do is want power and have a few scruples.
1: (laughs) That's right. I mean, how much have you heard? I know you see a a lot of reaction from articles like that. Well, if you can't afford to pay these heroes what they need to get paid, well, you don't need to be in business anyway, right? Or it's these, it's the greedy businesses. I mean, what do you have to say? obviously we know what we think about that, but what do you have to say about
0: that? Well, no, look, I do get that from progressives a lot. When I write about the minimum wage, they say, well, if small businesses can't afford to pay workers $15 an hour, then they can't afford to be in business. And I get, I sort of get what they're saying, but I guess I would ask them to really reconsider whether they want big corporations that they're usually so skeptical of to be the only employers left on the block um, but the reason that, that their logic fails really is because the real minimum wage is always zero. So to say that a small business shouldn't be allowed to pay its workers $10 an hour, well, the alternative mo- mo- most realistically is that that worker gets $0 an hour. Not that they get $20 an hour or 15 because that's what the minimum wage is. Fundamentally, if that worker is not worth that price in the market, Mandating that price under law isn't going to make employers pay employees more than they are worth it's going to make them not hire them at all
2: yeah this is something we've seen you know Thomas Sowell and Milton Freeman talk about since the 70s and 80s Um, and the real minimum wage is still zero Uh, whatever arbitrary number the government decides it is it doesn't matter and this is a perfect example Uh, I call it going from uh, hero to zero um, because, you know, they mandated this hero pay and now you have a bunch of zeros who don't have a job anymore. And, uh, it's really unfortunate, but you know, Mil- um, you know, mentioning Thomas Sowell and, and Milton Friedman, we've been, we've been talking about this now for 50, 60 years, at least probably longer than that.
1: Not us personally, but other people. Well, yeah. yeah.
2: And we, we, you know, as I look back throughout history, I feel like we keep having the same conversation. So, you know, I, I know that what, uh, we're all doing is, is helping trying to shift the message, but how do you, how do we get over that hump? How do we start uh, to to try to persuade people to look at the actual consequences of what's taking place and understand what causes those rather than jumping on the next uh, great tweet uh, from <laughs> the Long Beach City Council or whoever?
0: Right. Well, I, I get your point, but I guess I'd point out a little bit of optimism. I mean, the federal minimum wage has been 70 70- 7.25 for a long time now. It hasn't been raised in a long time. So I think to some extent, uh, people who are arguing, you know, the, the free market economic position on this have been successful at the federal level. Uh, and, and I think it, it may not actually pass. They're pushing hard for it right now, but I'm not sure that that will get through the Senate through Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. I really don't think, I hope at least that it will not Uh, So I guess I'd say that it's the local level where we've seen some crazy minimum wages. The crazy thing about the Long Beach story is their minimum wage was already $14, (laughs) right? So it wasn't like they were paying people seven bucks an hour under the old federal minimum wage. No, they already had a high local one. So that's where we've seen some losses. But here's the interesting thing, right? Because we have allowed it to basically be left to the state and local level. uh, Just rewinding to pre pandemic times, because it's a little simpler for the purposes of this. Some states like California or New York and cities within them had really high minimum wage rates. Other states like New Hampshire, which is near where I'm from in Massachusetts, had no minimum wage. So the minimum wage was the federal minimum wage, which is 725, which is way below the market rate. So it's like basically as if you had no minimum wage at all. Uh, before COVID-19, they had one of the lowest unemployment rates in the nation, one of the lowest poverty rates in the nation, and one of the highest teenage employment rates in the nation. So because we have been successful at stopping these policies being forced on the country through the whole federal level, that does mean that we can see the success stories at the state and local. We can also see the failure stories courtesy of places like Long Beach, California.
2: We also- Which could explain why those Kroger's were already in the red. Yeah, because they are right. <laughs> they are already forced. So I, I know we, um, I know we dove right in. But for you know, for our audience and for some people who don't know you, uh, you know, you labor yourself uh, a libertarian conservative, or, or think of yourself that way, I guess. And uh, on your website, a conservative journalist. So uh, how would you get started in all this? Uh, you look like a pretty young guy, and you know what kind of led you down uh, your beliefs, and uh, how did you get started working for fee and doing what you do? Oh boy, that's
0: a long story, but I'll give you the (laughs) short version. Uh, So basically, I went to college at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is uh, the biggest public school in my home state of Massachusetts, and also has the unique distinction of having the only Marxist economics department in America. Nice. Uh, so I went in, and I was an economics major in college, and I studied under Marxist professors, and this isn't me insulting them, that's what they would call themselves, <laughs> uh, who basically whitewashed the Soviet Union and thought Bernie Sanders was an establishment moderate shill, um, <laughs> and <laughs> you laugh, but yeah. kind of naturally these people uh, pushed me to the opposite side, and I, and I was always interested in economics, and I became... Uh, interested in free market and fiscal conservative and libertarian economics. And then I started really writing and speaking out because as a dissenting voice in that in that bubble. And then I think when I when I came to the conservative world of conservative Inc in Washington, DC, I realized there were a lot of ways in which I wasn't a traditional conservative and I was more socially libertarian. Um, and so I, I wound up in the position where I'm a journalist, opinion journalist, right? I, I don't claim to be an unbiased reporter. Uh, always focused on economic and policy issues. That's my background and my main interest. Uh, And so I guess I ended up in this position where I always felt like a libertarian among conservatives and like more conservative among libertarians. And that's the kind of approach I take to uh, my reporting and my writing uh, and my policy analysis. And thankfully, so far, there's been uh, something of a demand for it.
1: Now, you've also got a got a podcast going now, which I understand. Is it a, a fairly new podcast going for a few months now?
0: Yeah. So I just started about three, four months ago. Uh, it's a, a twice a week interview style podcast, not daily like you guys, but <laughs> maybe one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I I'm basically just have guests on that I've made through uh, my work in journalism. I have always thought, you know, I've met so many contacts. It'd be great to kind of put them to use. Uh, And so I've been able to have interesting people from Glenn Greenwald to uh, Senator Rand Paul to Nancy Mace. I got Thomas Massey coming up. And this is so at some point I have Tulsi Gabbard coming on. It's just (laughs) getting a date. has been hard, but they've given it the green light Uh, because if you don't already know, we stand. So anyway, it's breaking boundaries. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get the podcasts. Uh, And hopefully people will check it out if they've got any interest in what I have to say because it's been pretty fun so far and it keeps growing and it keeps looking like we're going to be able to get more exciting guests on soon.
2: That's that's totally awesome.
1: Tulsi is a really interesting... Story to me because obviously us being in the libertarian sphere here, there's the the ongoing. Well, there's always a debate over whether or not someone's a libertarian. That's what you have to do as a libertarian is is talk about whether or not people are libertarians. <laughs> and and so Tulsi is very interesting to get someone who's more progressive on her economics, but obviously as you've written about before, uh, very libertarian leaning when it comes to government surveillance and foreign policy things like that.
0: So here's how I look at Tulsi Gabbard. I look at her as a strong issue area ally. She's not a libertarian. Anyone who's telling you she should run for the libertarian party nomination is kind of fooling themselves, right? She supports Medicare for all, environmental regulation, heavy-handed, Green New Deal, right? She's very much a progressive on economic issues. What she is, though, is an old school progressive that believes in civil liberties, surveillance, free speech, even for the bigots. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, she is a powerful anti-war and anti-interventionist voice on foreign policy issues. So my, my approach has always been that I, someone doesn't have to be a libertarian. They only have to be libertarian on the issue that we're working together on uh it, it, and whether you call it libertarian or whether it's a conservative position any the pro freedom position on any issue if somebody's on the right side of that issue and assuming you know we're not talking about like truly crazy or horrible people right but just people in american politics if they agree with you on this issue you should work with them
2: i don't disagree with that at all
0: yeah <laughs> that's i we
2: always say you know we were at uh, politicon uh, i guess 2 years ago because they, they didn't have it yeah it's uh, been a while now um, yeah and you know we we obviously talked to a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters and the one thing is that we started with is like w- we agree with you healthcare is way too expensive there is a problem in our healthcare system we just completely disagree on the solution so it's like we can agree with a, with a lot of the issues that even the, the left and the right point out um, but as you mentioned the you know what we believe here is that economics is like the most important thing because throughout history it's either helped or killed the most people uh, um, yeah. and it has the, the largest effect on, on human life. So, um, take me back to a uh, college real quick, because I, f- I found that interesting that, so essentially you kind of went in with a little bit of conservative ideas, but you were pretty open-minded. And then you had uh self-proclaimed uh, Marxist economics professors, which I find fascinating that you can, it's just fine to be a self-proclaimed Marxist with a hammer and sickle flag, you know, uh, <laughs> and uh we we demonize nazis and we should demonize both of them the same uh because they've killed killed so many people but how did how did that go with uh, you know did you start out thinking you know in your freshman year like okay marxism maybe this is a good idea and then you know as you started to dig into it uh kind of switch gears or or was were you kind of uh um against it the whole time
0: yeah so i came into college uh not super political honestly and in high school i didn't really engage that much with politics i i played sports i was a good student but it wasn't i wasn't really following politics very closely or anything so i did go into it maybe with a slightly blank slate definitely kind of maybe conservative leaning in my just inclinations but i did go into it somewhat um not politically active but honestly i was repulsed from pretty much the get-go from the extremely illiberal woke social justice atmosphere on campus where you know w- when somebody wrote a harambe meme on one of the whiteboards in my dorm the ras called the police and said it was a hate crime like it, it, we had a free speech zone around the campus center that you had to reserve and you could only speak from one thirty to 2 p.m or something like that <sighs> on weekdays <laughs> um it, so it, honestly it it was awoke a woke dystopia uh, and I in, in initially immediately recoiled. And honestly, I probably recoiled too much in that I, um, for a brief period of time, was like somewhat enticed by kind of like Trumpy or Charlie kirk e reactionary conservatism. Uh, but that really didn't last long. The more I read and started to think about the issues and uh, I kind of moved to a different position than that. But that's where it started. And with the economics thing, I mean, they don't start off you know, spoon feeding you Soviet propaganda. <laughs> but you you start off taking, you know, micro 101 and then macro 101 and mac- and and the bias is pretty clear. But then it's the advanced courses where some of the professors were really arguing so, some pretty radical things uh, in hindsight. and You know, in the moment, I guess now that I am an economics reporter and I know about it uh, and I've completed my degree and I've read so much on top of that, Friedman, Sol, Mises, so on. I know I can look back and see a lot of things that were crazy at the time. Um, I actually had one of my economics professors refer to the New York Times as a center-right publication. <laughs> so that, that kind of tells you how, where, where her mental frame was at. Anyway, though, in the moment, I didn't realize how crazy and radical some of it was, but I did seek out intentionally the opposing view, which is something that most young people on college campuses today don't do. And I credit that, you know, me reading the Wall Street Journal, me reading National Review, me reading Reason. Uh, I credit a lot of that with steering me to a much different place than the narrative they were all selling.
2: It sounds like you were uh, like in the precursor to Chaz Chop over there in just about to start their own Chaz. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, you- quick question then uh, yes or no. Did you graduate? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they allow yeah. <laughs> you to, did did you to pass? You. <laughs> so, that's the thing, actually. I will say
0: this. I never experienced any sort of grade discrimination. I wrote, my, I wrote one of my senior papers on the 2017 tax cuts uh, favorably, and I received an A on it from a Keynesian economic macroeconomics professor. I had a left-wing ACLU Harvard Law graduate who taught a civil liberties course, who actually really, he loved me and wrote me a, a glowing letter of recommendation. That's now, a, I certainly had some professors who were kind of nasty to me yeah. <laughs> in class, but I will say some conservatives, you know, say I have to lie to get an A. Maybe that's true in some places. I tend to think it's slightly exaggerated and it's certainly, it just never happened to me. And I was at one of the most left-wing campuses there is, at least in the Northeast.
2: That is, it. I mean, Hey, that's a, that's a positive spin on it. <laughs> so yeah, look, I
0: don't, I, I have a lot of negative things to say, but it's not all negative. And a lot of those people had really bad ideas Um, but that doesn't mean they were really bad people and there were definitely redeeming elements to a lot of them. And it wasn't an all bad atmosphere, even though it was a net negative in many ways, And I
2: think like that kind of discourse is so necessary, you know, like I am of the belief that we need these opposing ideas, but we also need to be able to talk about them. So the frustrating part for, for us, especially with like, you know, tech people shutting down, um, you know people who disagree and and have difference of opinion. Um, I'm obviously all for private companies and I get that, but I think what we need more than anything is we need the the opposing views to, to have it out with each other, uh, you know, vocally and (laughs) nonviolently. And so that we can come up with the, the best ideas because, you know, for, you know, for us right now, free market capitalism, obviously we haven't found a better system, but maybe there is a better system out there. But if we can't discuss opposing ideas, um, and we're only fed one certain grand narrative, then how do we ever reach those better ideas? I completely agree.
0: And I, the, the biggest problem I had with people at UMass was not that they were leftist, but that they were intolerant. So when I wrote, for example, a column, I was a, a columnist for the student newspaper. Ultimately, I was mobbed and fired. Uh, but when I wrote a column defending uh, Secretary of Education, then-Secretary uh, Betsy DeVos' Title IX reforms to due process, which obviously said that taking sexual assault accusations is very serious uh, and must be done, but shouldn't happen in kangaroo courts. And, and students need to have the right to cross-examine their accuser, the right to have legal counsel present, more than a 50% standard of proof, all of these things that I think are very common sense reforms that, that embody due process as a principle. Now I wrote uh, a completely admittedly controversial op-ed, or column rather, arguing that point in the school newspaper. The difference was they responded to it, many of the critics, many of the critics I had, with threats on my life, um, claims that I had committed an act of violence against women by publishing and writing this article, demands by uh, former editors who had graduated the newspaper signed like letters uh, <laughs> denouncing the paper's decision to uh, enact this act of violence against the women in the community at UMass and basically just bonkers batshit crazy uh, illiberal response that says oh an idea we don't like well that's violence we that makes us unsafe and that to me is the most toxic thing and I agree with you on the policy side of big tech but I find personally uh, the stifling of voices, uh, with some exceptions, really, but, but in general, really problematic from a moral point of view, because it is, you know, free speech is the best, sunlight is the best disinfectant, as the free speech argument goes, and we really can't uh, advance as a society without a robust battle over ideas.
1: Yeah, I uh, completely agree. And what you said there with the tech, that on policy, I'm i am sure you probably agree. I don't have, I've told a lot of people, a lot of people more on the right wing that ask me, like, shouldn't we do something about this? And I'm like, I can't come up with anything that the government could yeah. do that would make a situation better ever. I the audit can't name a thing that they, that they can do. Especially on tech. It's like, yeah. you want
0: to hand the keys over to Kamala Harris? Yeah, right?
1: how is it better? Right. <laughs> and, and even the Section 230 thing, as I understand it, what we saw at the start of this year is a lot what the section 230 being gone would look like, which is them trying to cover themselves anytime right. something uh, negative is going on. And so if they don't have those protections, they're going to be way more. Right. Repealing to 230 everyone.
0: means more censorship, yeah. not less. Yeah, so, if, if Twitter was liable for everything posted to its feed, Donald Trump would have been banned after a week yeah. on the platform. <laughs> I just, <laughs> just never just understood.
1: I haven't understood the push for that except for just a, punishment tactic for the companies and and it's just backlash
0: honestly it's just reactionary backlash but at the same time one thing i don't like is there are some libertarians who i think would just say nothing to see here private company all good and i think that's stupid too like we should be able to look at something and say it's bad or say there's a problem yet also not demand a big government solution but sometimes people uh, from the libertarian purist crowd i've found when they want to uh, uh, deny the need for a government solution they feel the need to deny the problem exists at all and i think that's inaccurate in this case and also a political mistake
2: it's dismissive and it's not helpful uh, you know because you it is a problem uh, and like you said i agree hundred percent it's morally there's something morally wrong with that uh, and so we you have to talk about it and you know the solution ultimately is is that this is a free market like you know create your own server farm and your cloud servers and and do all that the only problem it's a
0: little harder though like that's what i said and then when they unplugged parlor it made that argument more difficult the actual hold.
2: only problem though i see is is uh, internet service providers because it's become so it's so expensive and cumbersome and reg- heavily regulated that it would be really difficult for you to run, start running your own lines or launching your own spa- satellites into space to create your own internet service provider. But, but ultimately, I mean, you know, you can create. You know, Amazon started twenty years ago with nothing, so you can create your own. Cloud service You can. Company. And
0: also, uh, the, the difference is that tech companies aren't actually monopolies. It's not a super competitive, right. perfectly competitive free market, but there is obviously competition. None of them have monopolies. And more importantly, they do respond to consumer pushback. So for example, one thing I found extremely objectionable was when Twitter banned the New York Post reporting about Hunter Biden, you couldn't even share the link. Well, they got a shit ton of backlash for that, and they announced a policy change that they will no longer ban links from being shared. And so I'll say that even something like as left-wing as Twitter still responds to consumer pushback. So if consumers in mass really push back on this, they can still achieve change through through the market, even though it's not really a perfectly competitive free market. By any
2: stretch, see, seeing that with Robinhood right now,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're definitely going to see a lot of changes with Robinhood and a lot of other trading app. I mean, what was the day after the Robinhood thing? SoFi said that they would pay seventy five dollars for people mm-hmm. switching over their accounts from Robinhood. I mean, the market. Especially in the market, the actual stock market, the market's going to take care of this problem. Robinhood's going to see a, a lot of backlash, tons of backlash for, for a long time. That's from for all people. you game
2: stonk folk.
1: <laughs> all of you, tra- all of you uh, traders out there. But that, that goes back to why you're saying it's wrong for libertarians to dismiss this problem. Because we do believe in the free market, but the market is not going to take care of anything if the consumers don't say anything about it. And so that's yeah, exactly. the only way it's going to work. Is for the it really is the only up. way
0: that it's going to work. And that's actually one of the great things about free market capitalism is that it gives everybody a voice. Every dollar is a vote uh, in a way that the political system honestly doesn't. The political system is skewed towards the most radical constituencies who form primary electorates, uh, the biggest donors, you know, the biggest power brokers in the media and in corporations and so how much how much for, i'll just put it this way you have a lot more say as a consumer over what a company does by voting with your wallet than you actually do at influencing the president of the united states
1: absolutely and um i was going to go through a couple things because you just said there you know every dollar is a vote and it also reminded me of something uh, i was i was going to say back earlier but we complicate this when the government takes money from people or prints money and then puts votes towards other companies where the consumers weren't putting those votes and then we also we were talking about people going from hero to zero losing their jobs well throw in the uh employment insurance with that you know did they really lose all their income because now they can just get on the the unemployment that's going to be coming through our stimulus for for however long so the government really corrupts this whole free market thing don't they (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, they do because the most, the single most important aspect, this is an interesting question. If I asked you guys right now, what is the single most important element of capitalism? You might say markets, you might say profit. That's actually wrong. It's prices. Mm -hmm. Prices are what central planning does not have. Bureaucrats, you know, huddled in an office somewhere, try to make the rules for the corn market in Iowa. They don't know anything about it. They don't know if there's a drought that season. They don't know if there's bugs coming in, right? They, they don't know if there's about to be a big uptick in demand, they can't plan anything. Prices are how a market economy distributes information that no one person or group of people could ever understand and, and really have all of it and make decisions. The price mechanisms and the price market really, it does that enormous social function. It distributes resources efficiently, but government intervention, that messes with prices, things like a minimum wage, things like subsidies, what they do is they break that most important function. Uh, they would be better off, honestly, with uh, some sort of UBI and then allowing a the market price to fluctuate than they would be with something like a minimum wage because that market price mechanism really is so important to the efficiency. When you break it with, like you said, big unemployment payments that that alter the labor market and the going rate, and they pay people. (laughs) The insane thing with the COVID relief was that 70% of people could get more on unemployment benefits than they ever made at work. Uh, They really break the system. And then you don't don't have capitalism then, you have cronyism. You've got a crony capitalism uh, that just creates inequality and inefficiency, and is better than full socialism, of course, but is still not really great for anybody. And that's when people get discontent, and they look to Far right or far left solutions?
2: Nate and I actually make the argument, and, and I want to know what your thoughts are on this. Nate and I make the argument that we're actually we actually more resemble a, f- a fascist style of government, considering it's everything's privately owned for the most part, with uh, heavy heavy regulations. As as and, the economics yeah, go, yeah. and direction uh, from the government. What would what would you make of that versus versus more socialist, uh, or is it a combination of, two, of the both?
0: It's interesting actually because in terms of economics fascist socialist it all comes down to command and control private control free markets versus government um I would say that the government actually has a larger role in the economy than you than you might think in terms of what it directly controls like healthcare spending for example healthcare we don't have full socialized healthcare like Britain, but we don't have anything close to a market healthcare system. Almost all of it is spent by the government between Medicaid, Medicare, or these giant programs. So we have a very mixed system that has many sectors with somewhat free markets, and then a couple key sectors like education and healthcare. Uh, that are in housing that are incredibly distorted and regulated and swampy and crony and subsidized. And it is no coincidence that all those other markets that are left somewhat free are what drive the US's prosperity and success. And then those three industries I just named are the most expensive and problematic industries we have today, education, healthcare, and housing.
2: You could throw in banking with that
1: too. um it, we tend to think that the government has to provide those things that, you know, we, we think we can't go without. It can't be left up to a profit system, right? A profit motive system. That would be terrible. But actually, I would I would rather all of those things be on a profit motive system. We, we see that that's far better at using those resources and getting the prices down on everything. We work in healthcare. Charlie has a healthcare company that deals with healthcare regulations all day, and i I mean, we, we're we all uh, in the healthcare industry all the time. It is absolutely not a free market w- right. whatsoever.
0: And, and think about it like this. People will often say that about healthcare. Well, healthcare is so important. Everyone has to have it. It's essential. So the government has to do it. Well, so is food. Think about that. <laughs> yeah. So is food. And yet we have this enormously successful system where you can go into a grocery store in America and have 15 different types of Uh, macaroni and cheese for 79 cents a box each, right? There's 10 different grocery stores within driving distance for you. If you're in at least this part of the country and many others. Not if you're in Long Beach. Right. No, no, not, not if you're in Long Beach, (laughs) that's for sure. But, and then what we do have is a food stamp system where for people who can't afford to buy food, they are given money to go onto the private market. And, you know, we could talk about the merits of a purely free market, but I would argue at the very least that that sort of an approach that leaves the private market to do all the distribution and solely injects public financing is much, much better than having the government seize entire parts of it through Medicare and through VA hospitals and through all these broken state run uh, money gaping inefficient bureaucracies. So I, when people say that, oh, something's too important to leave to the profit motive, I say all the more reason that we should leave it to the profit motive because I don't want bureaucrats deciding things over life and death uh, because let's face it, guys, bureaucrats don't have the best record of decision making.
2: And then what they do is they bring up the worst possible case scenario to make an unemotional argument <laughs> of why we need the government to take control. It's the, it's the single uh, black mother with 80 kids that has cancer and uh, the you know her seven different uh, baby daddies are all alcoholic brutes and yeah and, and well I'd
0: argue that the history of our government hasn't served single black mothers of eight kids very well
2: right exactly <laughs> no so it's it's you know it's all very interesting so I know uh, we're running out of time here Brad so uh, why don't you uh, let's you know give your final thoughts on what's the uh, most important thing that we can focus on for for 2021 perhaps getting our Uh, economy back in order and stop shutting everything down or whatever you think that is and then let uh, let everybody know where to find you and and how they can uh, support you
0: so one thing i'll be focusing on big time and i think is really important is making sure that a lot of these expansions of government that we've witnessed during the COVID 19 era are not allowed to just become permanent parts of life Uh, Because that happens a lot, where the government expands during crisis and says, this is temporary, and then they never roll back. So whether it is minimum wage, hero pay mandates, or ultra generous unemployment benefits, or the ability to tell people their livelihood is illegal... Right. These are things that I I don't know if we ever should have accepted, but we unfortunately have accepted in the middle of this crisis. But we can't let them become, you know, 9-11 Patriot Act where something, uh, uh, an emergency happens and then they pass emergency powers that become permanent powers. We should be on guard against that. And that'll be a big focus of my work. Yeah. So right, like we mentioned at the beginning, if people want to keep up with what comes next, check out fee.org, F-E-E.org, where most of my writing is these days. And of course, the podcast, Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere
2: else. You make a good point because there's a reason that the founders put in in the constitution that they can only um, support a war for two years. They can only fund a war for two years and then it would have to come back because Thomas Jefferson famously said that, uh, you know, you, you basically you lose the most liberties in perpetual warfare or, or emergency type situations is where you're no longer free. So there's a reason they put limits on that, which we don't even follow those anymore. Anyway, so. nothing
1: so permanent <laughs> as a temporary government program, right? That's right. So, you right. Know, funny,
0: funny fact that, that the quote that you just said from Milton Friedman, my boyfriend got that ingrained in a plaque for me that we're going to put on my wall.
1: Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> That's kind of a, I don't know, like an ominous wall uh, art. I don't know that would kind of make me feel I don't know, a little, a little negative. Uh, maybe if you look at it in the right way, it keeps you motivated, right?
0: Yeah. Right. It's just so relevant to everything I'm usually <laughs> talking about that having it over my shoulder would be kind of funny.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, no, it's,
2: <laughs> I think it's perfect. That's good. I'm actually,
1: I'm, uh, let us know where, let us know where you're getting that. Maybe we'll grab that. We'll see. But yeah. uh, Brad, thank you so much for your time today, man. We had, we had a good one.
0: Thanks for having me guys.